I'm pleased to present BRAD grass-fed whey protein isolate superfuel, the absolute highest quality all-natural protein supplement infused with creatine that delivers everything you need to optimize your appetite for fat loss, recover quickly from workouts, and build and maintain lean muscle mass, the single most important attribute for aging gracefully. Our protein comes directly from small family farms in America's dairy land of Wisconsin. It's cold processed and micro filtered for maximum bioavailability and digestibility. So please don't mess with the many cheap commodity protein supplements that are ineffective, inferior, less pure, and often contain junk sweeteners, especially the plant-based offerings that are vastly less bioavailable than the gold standard of protein supplements that's whey protein isolate. Whether you're in your peak athletic years looking to grow and recover or in the older age groups trying to delay aging and decline, whey and creatine are widely agreed to be the most critical and effective supplements to take for the rest of your life. You can easily stir the superfuel in water or make a delicious smoothie every day. I'm certain that you're going to love the pleasant, light, natural vanilla bean and cocoa bean flavors. So try some on Amazon today. It's a huge hit with dozens of five-star reviews. Or you can order direct from bradnutrition.com with our buy three, get one free, and make the super fuel a centerpiece of your daily routine. I'm author and athlete Brad Kearns. Welcome to the Be Rad podcast, where we explore ways to pursue peak performance with passion throughout life. Visit bradkearns.com for great resources on healthy eating, exercise, and lifestyle. And here we go with the show. If I were doing push-ups all the time, I'd want to make sure I do some sort of pull movement or something along those lines. But for the most part, I don't need to go in and, you know, one week do such and such and the next week change it up to another program. And he said, you know, if you look at the trajectories after this, people end up having post-traumatic stress uh, disorder versus if you just let the natural resilience happen, um, they back to normal. I feel like I'm going to beat, you know, the 30-year-old kid next to me, you know, doing the snatch test. Um, and that's where I need to be realistic that I probably can, but you know what? I probably should do the proper warm-up, probably should test this out a little bit and not, uh, you know, just jump right into it. Hey, listeners, it's my pleasure to bring back my friend and favored podcast guest, Dr. Craig Marker. I believe this is show number three. Um, he's such a prominent figure in the strength training world. His epic article titled Hit Versus Hurt uh, was, I believe, one of the best things published in decades to help us frame our high-intensity workouts. It's great to see that a lot of people are talking about it now. A lot of people are using this term hurt, high-intensity repeat training. Uh, and we've talked plenty about training in the past. And so this is a really fun show because we get to go off onto different directions, a lot of them informed by Craig's actual day career as a psychologist at Mercer University in Atlanta. And so we're talking about resiliency. We're talking about how to bounce back from post-traumatic stress. There's going to be some surprises and some controversial assertions in there that might help you as a parent or as a person who is trying to do their best, be competitive, but also uh, maintain focus on the process and kind of balance those disparate goals. So I think you're going to enjoy this winding conversation where we do talk about exercise and training and designing workouts appropriately uh, quite frequently, especially both of us in the 50 plus category, still trying to perform magnificent athletic feats and feeling that frustration of uh, taking longer to recover from such feats and trying to dial in those workouts into that sweet spot where you get great fitness stimulation, but you're also not compromising uh, your recovery, your longevity, and it is a big challenge. And I like when Craig a couple times said, "I don't have the, I don't have all the answers here. We got to keep figuring it out." So I think it's helpful to learn about yourself, learn about your tendencies, understand the importance of applying uh, stresses and challenges to your life, 
but not overdoing it and going overboard. So yeah, let's give a listen to a very thoughtful Dr. Craig Marker. Dr. Craig Marker is back and we have some pieces to pick up and further reflection. So I'm so glad to connect with you after a couple uh, mishits due to widespread power failure in the, in the south of the U.S. I hope you guys are okay now. All, all is good. It was a kind of a very targeted hits. It's kind of random <laughs> power outage. So a, a targeted attack on a, on a beautiful university. I'm sorry about yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, you had some great comments on our last show about fission and fusion in, in terms of it, same thing as feast or famine when we're talking about your uh, dietary practices, the benefits of fasting, but also the importance of performance and recovery. Uh, the listeners, I shall remind you that this guy is on the on the war path. He's trying to dunk at an advanced age and do all those wonderful kettlebell workouts that you share with everybody so much. So uh, we're kind of in the same boat, Craig, because I'm also in those uh, higher age groups, higher than you, and um, struggling and trying to figure out this puzzle uh, where I know I don't want to sit on the couch and watch other people perform, uh, but then I also don't want a litany of aches and pains and minor injuries and difficulty recovering from from workouts and so maybe we should um hit this uh this concept of where um popular dietary practices fall into place with people who are generally metabolically healthy fit good blood markers um good body composition do we does brad kearns and others need to uh fast at all uh, or play around with keto low carb to tap into these vaunted benefits. And um, I'm referencing my recent shows with Energy Balance podcast, Jay Feldman, who makes a really compelling argument that any sort of uh, dietary restriction, such as fasting, time-restricted feeding, keto, low-carb, is a form of stress. It actually turns on stress hormones, and that's the mechanism by which they work and bring you the wonderful benefits. But the same is true for high-intensity exercise. Yeah, I, th- I think, and I, I hope you'll challenge me and, and if, uh, take uh, Feldman's ideas and really challenge me with this, because we've had some awesome email discussions about this. I, I think I'll just kind of start it with this caveat that for 99% of the population, we don't have to worry about over taxing the body. Exercise is <laughs> darn good for them. Um, and we shouldn't be talking about overtraining. Don't, it's our little secret. The 1% room mm. can have secret about it and talk about overtraining, but for 99% of the people just train, um, and get, get at it fast, do whatever you need to. And those type of things, your listeners are a whole different story. They're part of this club of, uh, of, I think people that might be overdoing it at times. And, and so I think there's, you know, different, different things that we have to think about. I think for most people, we talk about our training way too often, and it's not a problem for most people where bodies are pretty good at figuring out, Hey, you shouldn't do this. Um, there might be a difference between overtraining and training less smart than we should, um, that, you know, and you and I were talking about this before we started, but I, I did a snatch test this weekend. Uh, somebody said, you know, and a snatch test in, in kettlebell world is um, putting a, a, a 24 kilogram or 55 pound kettlebell over your head a hundred times in five Oof. minutes. Um, in how many minutes? In in five minutes. Oh, mercy. So, and I, you know, I'm not going to let some young whip, whippersnapper beat me on, on this snatch test. So I, of course I'm going to do this and I've done snatches in a year. Um, but there was one movement where I kind of went internally and I felt a little bit of a pop in my, uh, biceps and a part of uh, the internal part of my bicep. And I thought that was a stupid thing for me to do. It wasn't overtraining. It was just uh, dumb for me to do. So, um, you know, I, I think that's, that's part of it is that, uh, sometimes we equate dumb training with overtraining and, and that's, I am certainly guilty of that as well. Um, but yeah, no. Let me let me stop for a second. I'll just keep keep talking about this. But I've I've got a few ideas on this. I, I want you to. I think we had really good discussion about it. So, yeah, and I think there's an overlay there, and you've written about this, and of course, this lends to your your day job, your work in in the psychology field, and especially with anxiety, anti fragility, uh, things of that nature, where um, we would benefit from putting our body into all forms of challenge, not just uh, getting up and working out more, but 
um, going to the grocery store and greeting people in the front. Didn't you take the group there and had them go through this exercise because they were uh, feeling shy and withdrawn or whatever, going out of your comfort zone. And so uh, mixing in more of those. And I think that's where we get into the popularity of the cold plunge and how it represents a, a way of overcoming the body's uh, fears and anxieties in a, in a, in a micro uh, exercise that can then uh, ideally uh, play into all manner of lifestyle behaviors and goals and challenges that you face or withdraw from. If you're, if you're not, if you become fragile due to the comforts and conveniences of your, of your confined day. Yeah. You know, what you just said reminded me of this far side cartoon and it was a crane with a, like kind of a phone booth type thing on it. Um, and so the person's inside the phone booth, there are snakes coming out the window and it says our, our new exposure technique for a fear of heights, fear of snakes and fear of closed in spaces. And I, I think that's, that could be problematic. I, I think the right amount of stress at the right time. And, and when we do stuff with, we'll talk about exercise, it's much easier, but with anxiety disorders, you know, it's a piece by piece. We take a little bite of it and then we, you know, finish that challenge and then we do the next piece. We don't, you know, throw snakes on the person and then the next thing and just keep trying to make it as bad as mm. possible. You know, it's one thing at a time. And I think the same thing with our other hermetic stressors, we, you know, the cold plunge is great. Um, and part of our conversation was, should we be doing cold plunge on a fast after intense training? Um, you know, those type of things. And the answer probably as usual is it depends. It might be, you know, you might be able to handle that. You've used to the cold plunge body's adapted to that. It knows how to uncouple the, um, in the mitochondria and, and build heat, um, for somebody else, that's a major stressor and a much bigger deal. Um, so I, I think it probably is dependent. And, you know, as we do this more and more, um, we get diminishing returns out of these, but also diminishing stress out of these type of techniques. And, you know, that's maybe when we have to add on the next, next piece. Well, I should maybe try some fasting every once in a while. Hmm. Yeah, I'm thinking of this in the context of that uh, common refrain in the fitness scene where they want you to mix up your training so that you don't get used to your regimen. And I kind of recoil when I hear it because I always go to Jack Lane, who I had uh, the good fortune of interacting with personally when I was a kid. We played golf together and I would see him a lot at the golf course. Uh, but, you know, when you're doing a thousand push-ups and a thousand sit-ups every morning, I don't think Jack Lane needed to mix it up in order to um, continue his fitness progress, because if you can get to a certain level and then be able to uh, perform and, and be well adapted to it, so it's not highly stressful. Same with Kipchoge, the greatest marathoner of all time, where his training log has been published on the internet. People have scrutinized it like crazy. And it's like, the guy's a machine. He runs, um, you know, 20 miles a day at a very good pace with interval workouts and all these things thrown in there, but he's well within his capabilities at all times to the extent that he doesn't even need to taper before major marathons. He just puts in his work every single day, but it's so minimally stressful to him that, mm -hmm. um, he's, you know, he can rise up to uh, bust a world record when he does want to open the throttle a little bit. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think there's uh, the, the term keep your body confused is just kind of, uh, it's, um, I, I don't, I, I agree with what you said. I don't, mm. I don't think we need to keep our body confused. It's, it's, it's probably good to have an overall program that you're working, you know, you know, if I were doing pushups all the time, I'd want to make sure I do some sort of pull movement or something along those lines. But for the part, I don't need to go in and, you know, one week do such and such and the next week change it up to another program and you know i can stick with the same you know i think that's why kettlebells have really resonated with me i can do i know exactly what i need to do to get my my hinge my squat my pull and my press and those sort of four basic you know two upper body push and press or uh, press and pull and then two lower body hinge and squat you know kind of covers what your body needs to do yeah. for the most part so what do you think um, yeah. about that common uh, commentary that we are obligated to fit in this so-called zone two uh, comfortably paced cardio if we want to get a full report card as an all-around uh, fitness enthusiast? I, I've struggled with this, to be honest. I, I've toyed with this idea. And, you know, I think it's a, 
sort of a univariate type thinking where we're thinking of one variable, I think it's great. Build your aerobic system, have that base. Um, but when you do any sort of circuit training or interval training, that aerobic system's kicking in, cleaning up the mess from the glycolytic system. You're building your aerobic system. If our goal is to be an ultra runner, zone two training is outstanding. I, 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 I wouldn't know what else to program for somebody. Um, <laughs> but if your goal is um, to be you and to have world records in speed golf and, and uh, high jump, I, I I don't think, I think having that sort of quickness, that quick type two muscle fibers with that aerobic base built into it, I think that's probably what you want to do. And for longevity purposes, I, I wonder, do we get enough of that aerobic base from our other training that we don't have to spend 50 minutes doing type uh, zone two type training? I, I, I question it. I feel like I should do a six months of zone two training and see what it, what it does to me. Um, but I also feel like I have a pretty good base without doing it. And I, I, I don't know if how much, you know, more I can gain and would I want to, you know, would I benefit that much from it? Yeah. Well said. I, you know, I've done it for 40 years, so I can also comment that the specificity of training is so important and there's just no way around the puzzle of if you want to participate in a certain competitive event, you have to prepare for it and approximate it. But um, I contend that you can get that aerobic conditioning in so many ways. And, and Dr. Phil Maffetone's good about pointing out that going really, really slow, such as walking, uh, will stimulate an aerobic training effect, a very significant one. As soon as you get up off the couch and walk to the mailbox, you're, you're doubling your resting heart rate in most cases. And so um, it could be that we need way more zone one. I don't even know if that's a term, but, you know, walking and moving and, and just staying active. And then, uh, when we're doing those more strenuous workouts, we're getting a fantastic cardiovascular conditioning effect that kind of negates the importance of going out there, especially moving in a straight line. And I have a video on YouTube. I talk about a lot jogging 2.0, where I started mixing up my daily jog. I take the dog out. It's no big deal. I'm going very slow. I hardly count it as a, a big workout or training session. Um, but I, then I started doing uh, jumps up and down the bench and doing some balancing drills and then walking because something I did was strenuous and then jogging again and then finding another challenge. And it was way more fun. It was more interesting. Uh, it developed diverse fitness skills. And I guarantee you, I didn't lose any conditioning by taking those walks in between things that got me breathing a little bit hard. And when I got mm -hmm. back to the house, um, it's the same level of uh, difficulty as just a straight ahead jog. That's awesome. No, that's great. I mean, and yeah, you're really the expert on this. I mean, back in the primal endurance book, I mean, that's the big, the main point take home that I got was, you know, do things either really slow or really fast and, you know, kind of vary it up. You need both of those areas. So I like your, that running 2.0 stuff too. So back to that, uh, positioning of the diet. And again, I think your comment that 90, the 99% uh, of people who don't move enough and don't exercise enough are out there, maybe not listening as, uh, as much as I wish to this show, they'd be, they'd be uh, hit with some new information. Wow. Uh, but then with, um, you know, the eating strategy of someone who's, who's got a performance recovery and longevity goals. Um, wonder if we can talk about that, especially this, uh, kind of, uh, different contention that I'm fascinated with that maybe I should get up every morning and slam a big bowl of fruit and a giant protein smoothie rather than my typical inclination over the years, which would be uh, fasting. I feel fine. I'm doing a workout. I'm not hungry. I might have a square of dark chocolate here and there and another square and then have a, a big meal at midday. Um, but maybe I'm possibly interfering with peak performance and recovery by turning on too many dials of uh, cellular stress and, and so forth. I'm so excited to introduce you to Paluva. This is a new zero-drop minimalist shoe with the distinctive five-toe design from my main man, Mark Sisson. Paluvas give you the most authentic barefoot-style experience, but with sufficient cushioning so you can use them for all manner of daily movement, especially walking and many other fitness and athletic activities. Paluvas are also incredibly stylish, so you get a barefoot shoe that you're not embarrassed to wear around in daily life. 
It's been so cool to see the popularity of minimalist shoes grow over the recent years. But Paluvas are a step ahead of every other zero-drop wide-box shoe because of the critical feature of individual five-toe articulation, a separate slot for each of your toes. This allows for correct dynamic movement of the foot through the walking or running stride, which is impossible when your toes are encased into a single box, even a wide box. Well, you might know that minimalist shoes have faced controversy in recent years for causing injuries from inappropriate use. So here is the big picture mission. We want to get you walking in paluvas, living in your paluvas, going barefoot in your home or other safe areas as often as possible. Go ahead and use your specialized cushiony running shoes or your basketball shoes, work boots, high heels, things that you want to wear when you want to wear them, but wear your Paluvas as much as possible to reawaken the natural functionality of the human foot to stand, walk, run, and perform. Do you want to try a pair? I'm certain that when you put them on and walk around, you are going to quickly realize that these are the most comfortable, natural shoes that you've ever worn. They are designed to feel like you're, quote, walking barefoot on a putting green please visit paluva.com, that's P-E-L-U-V-A, and use the code BRADPODCAST and get 10% off your first pair. Paluvas, let your feet be feet. Yeah, I think what you said, the, the goals of performance, recovery, and longevity, we can hit all three of those goals, but sometimes we have to choose, a, you know, we have to choose a little bit more or less of one. If... Your goal is to, you know, break the high jump record. Like I, I think, you know, that's you when you might focus on that and you might do things a little bit differently, but your goal is also longevity. So you might give up some of the, you know, things that you, you might give up a little bit of performance. So I, I think it's just that, that balance that I don't, I don't think there's a, a, a black or white answer on this. We're trying to balance it by me fasting in the morning. Um, I might be long-term helping my fat ad adaptation and burning more fat um, and doing it on exercise. I might be training my body something different, but I'm not performing as well as I could be at that moment. And long-term, my training could maybe benefit, you know, I might be stronger long-term if I were to eat right beforehand. So I have to decide what's a little bit more important. I'm going to give up a little bit on performance for those longevity benefits. And I, I wish there was a clear cut answer that we, you know, maybe one of these shows will finally um, find the right answer and we can just quit, quit doing this, but I, I don't know what it is. I think we're giving up a little bit uh, each time. Um, you know, I, I was trying to think of an analogy when you were bringing this up by email and that pendulum analogy is what I keep mm. coming up with that, you know, we want to swing between, you know, mTOR and the muscles, and we want to uh, swing towards AMPK and, and blocking mTOR and that back and forth. And, you know, when we fast, we, we have more AMPK, uh, we have more signaling that we need, you know, more mitochondria, you know, and, and our high intensity does the same thing. And then when we swing to mTOR and muscles, we're building more muscle strength and those type of things. I think our goal, if if we're trying to, you know, I think of the speed bag. I'm not that great on the speed bag. Um, and that's what we're trying to do with our life is that speed bag. Like you got have to hit it, let the pendulum go, and you add a little bit more momentum and more momentum and just keep going. And you've got to get that rhythm down. And I think that's what we need to do is we start slow, add a little bit. Add, get a little bit faster by adding a little bit more to it. And our, we get better and better at that speed bag, but we're, we're just playing with our pendulum. Uh, we can't change it. If, if, you know, I can easily screw up the speed bag. And so it's, uh, you know, stops and, you know, hits me in the face or whatever. It's a, it's, it's easy to screw that up, but if I get the right rhythm and the right speed, it, it's a beautiful thing. And I think that's what we're trying to do with our bodies is get that pendulum going just a little bit farther, a little bit faster. Um, yeah, but not uh, not jump the gun and get too excited and try to go faster and then you screw everything up. Or I, I've noticed it, it, playing with the speed bag, like I'll get excited that now I'm I'm finally in the groove and I might smile oh. or I'm really I'm really thinking a thought like, all right, now I got it, and that's exactly when I screw up. Like when you oh, get gosh, out of yes. that get out of that flow state and start congratulating yourself or or observing yourself. Oh my goodness. 
Definitely so. Yes, yes. That feeling of accomplishment. I'm doing it. Oh, not anymore. Uh, not anymore. <laughs> hey, look over here. And not anymore. Uh, talk about the pendulum effect uh, with relation to your work with uh, post-traumatic stress and how the human resiliency uh, comes into play. Yeah, I, um, you know, I, I think I'm not like a big researcher in post-traumatic stress, but I, I will reference some people that are um, what. George Bonanno has found, he's looked at people who've had a stressful incident. So a major thing happens, you know, uh, one of them was 9-11. He just surveyed a bunch of people and watches what happens to them over time. And I think for most of us, we think as a, a, a stress that we're going to develop um, symptoms and, you know, be, be struggling with the stressor for the rest of our lives. And what he showed with his data was, for the most part, after one stressful life event, people have a trajectory where they might have a little bit of increase in uh, traumatic stress symptoms, but then over time, it goes back down naturally without any sort of intervention or, or sort of any sort of in, uh, treatment. Um, that's the natural pattern for things. We have a very good sort of uh, immune system um, associated with our resilience, our resilience to immune system. Um, so we bounce back pretty well for most things. Um, you know, another, uh, a lot of people have done research on this, but um, Dan Ariely is another person that looks at happiness and how well we predict things. And if we predict um, we're going to win the lottery, we're thinking, God, I'm going to be so freaking happy. I'm going to tell, uh, I'm going to do this, 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 I'm going to be, how are you, how am I going to be next year? I'll be just as happy as I am right after I win it. Terrible prediction because our happiness goes right back down to where it was before we won the lottery. Same thing if we lose a big, we have a big loss, um, you know, some sort of loss in life. We think, well, oh, gosh, I'm going to be terribly sad. I'm going to be devastated. I won't be able to survive this. But shortly after, we go back to where we were. And so we have this happiness immune system that brings us back to where we were. I don't want to say all traumas like that because there are certainly, I'm talking about a one-time stressful event um, there are people that have gone through multiple traumatic events, repeated traumatic events. And that's, I don't want to say that they're not resilient. It's just a whole different, a, a different ballgame with that. It's a, it's a different um, type of life event, especially kids who go through multiple traumatic events. I, I'm not talking about that at all. Um, but I think for the most part, we have an immune system that helps us get back to where we were much uh, more than we expect. And we, we think we need to do some sort of intervention. And I think sometimes, and I keep emphasizing think, but I, I've seen cases where um, we try to help people and that actually backfires, that we we are telling them that there should be a problem and it becomes a problem because we're telling them. That. <laughs> oh, that, what's an example? That, that, that sounds terrible. I get you though. Um, uh, Scott Lilienfeld, who passed away recently, but he's a professor at Emory University. He studied, he talked about these potentially harmful treatments that we might have in clinical psychology. And one was this uh, emergency response. You know, if there's a stressful event, send in a bunch of psychologists, have people talk about their mm. feelings and their problems. And he said, you know, if you look at the trajectories after this, people end up having post-traumatic stress uh, disorder versus if you just let the natural resilience happen, um, back to normal. And, you know, I just know clinically I've seen these type of situations where, you know, people have been at uh, like a, a veterans hospital and, you know, you need to talk about what happened in the military and that talking about it sort mm -hmm. of, gosh, this sounds terrible, but like, we're, you know, we're always trained. We need to, to work through this and work through it. If we let our natural system work, sometimes that just works well enough, I think. So I, I got a little off topic there, but, um, you know, I think for the most part, we're more resilient than we think we are. Um, that's, I would imagine, a little controversial because so many people are wedded to the process. And I, I'm thinking of, of funny examples because um, might, might as well talk straight here, but, you know, you, you go on uh, Facebook and somebody puts a picture up of their dog, rest in peace, Rusty, he was such a faithful companion for 14 years and I'm heartbroken. And then you get a hundred uh, condolences and it's like, look, man, your dog lived for 14 years. You gave it a good life. It's dead. Um, 
there was another uh, shooting that, that the country had to process uh, by perspective. Um, and so maybe if you make a huge deal about your uh, your elderly dog passing, it, it takes on more, you know, there's more grief and sadness generated instead of just, you know, quietly saying goodbye. I don't know. It's, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm sorry to offend dog owners. And I, I'm one myself. My dog's 15. And when that dog goes, it's going to be a sad day. But then we can just celebrate the, the wonderful lifespan and um, put it in perspective, I guess, and w- let our let our natural immune system, uh, you know, return us to um, <laughs> to calibration. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's the biggest part of it is that, um, you know, I don't know if asking for condolences and, and those type of things is making it worse. But yeah, the the idea that I'm not going to, you know, I think the message is if a therapist comes right up to you and, you know, like, let's say there's a, a new Facebook uh, intervention, like we see your dogs died, I'm going to come and, you know, call you, maybe you need to talk about it. I'm giving the message that you're not going to be okay. And I think mm. that's where the problem is, is that, um, you know, by telling people that you can't handle this on your own, that's our implicit message sometimes, um, where I think people are, have an immune system that, you know, just same thing with the win lottery, um, you know, Nobody goes up to a person that's a lottery winner, like, oh, you're going to be too happy. Um, these are natural emotions that we can feel and we can process. Our body's good at that. We need these emotions um, in order to function properly. And, and um, you know, I, I think we're almost telling people it's not okay to be sad. It's not okay to be affected mm. by this. Um, so I think that's where I was getting at is sort of our natural re- uh, response or immune response to these events is um, to generally get better. Not saying everybody gets better. Uh, some people do need help, but um, so. That's also interesting on the flip side where the lottery winner is going to come back down to baseline, no matter what, it reminds me. There's a great book by the psychologist Gay Hendricks. Um, we'll have the the title in the show notes because it's slipping me right now. But he talks about how everyone's got kind of a set point, a happiness set point, and you do things in life to kind of bring you back down to it if uh, too much good fortune comes your way. And then even when you're into struggle and difficulty, you're going to be drifting up to that set point with a more positive attitude than uh, the next person who's got a lower set point. And he's talking about raising that set point and discovering how you might be more deserving of even more abundance and happiness, but um, it, it takes work to, to kind of break through this uh, ceiling that's been created from whatever childhood programming and all the things that we talk about today or point to uh, that, you know, put us in our, our current situations. Yep. Yep. No, it sounds, sounds like a great book. And, um, you know, in, in different cultures, people have different levels of, of happiness. And I think mm. in, in our culture, we think we should be happy all the time. And, and, you know, some cultures expectation is not that, and maybe they're, you know, maybe built better for stressors. They just expect to have these stressful life events. And I think that's maybe the, you know, it's that sort of anti-fragility, um, you know, we need to feel other emotions. You know, I think we can't just be happy, happy, happy. We can be, you know, a little sadness for me here and there is not bad. A little anxiety, you know, teaches me a lesson. I learned something from these, you know, sort of events. I don't wish it on anybody. um, But I think that, you know, and nor do I try to find these things. But if I have it, I think the Buddhists are very good at, you know, you know, these are emotions and running away from these are, you know, one of our, our biggest reasons for um, dis- discomfort. So. Mm. Well, I'm, I'm thinking of my recent interview with author of Dopamine Nation, Dr. Anna Lemke, and talking about how as soon as we start putting numbers into the mix, that's when we have a, a, an inappropriate uh, overstimulation of the dopamine receptors where, you know, we're doing something for the pure love of the activity, and then someone says, "Oh, that's a beautiful work of art. You should sell it at the at the at the gallery or the the showing." And then no one buys it, and then you feel sad. And um, we're we're definitely locked into this consumerism culture here in the USA. And then I'm referencing like the studies on the happiest countries for whatever they're worth. Very interesting to read. Uh, but it, flooding the top rankings are the Scandinavian countries. Uh, Iceland, Denmark, Norway, Sweden, Finland is like one, two, three, four, five, every time they do these surveys. Mm -hmm. And one of the attributes that they point to is that these countries happen to have uh, tremendous income equality, a lack of income disparity, 
whereby the U.S., of course, has the most extreme income disparity of any uh, population in the history of the humanity. And that lends it to um, a lot of um, potential for anxiety, depression, uh, you know, comparison, flooding the dopamine receptors, and then feeling ennui, even though you're a very materially successful person and all that, all those hazards. I want to discuss the incredible benefits of red light therapy and how you can get started with Mito Red Light. Mito, like mitochondria, red light makes the premier light therapy devices in the world and at incredibly affordable prices. I stand in front of my Mito Pro 1500 unit every morning, carefully exposing my eyeballs, other important balls, and my entire body to special wavelengths of red and near for red light. When I tell people about my daily devotion to red light therapy, they typically ask, does this stuff really work? And the answer is yes. And there are thousands of studies supporting its effectiveness. Here's how. It's called photobiomodulation where specific wavelengths of red and near-infrared light, red's visible, near-infrared is not visible, that's why it looks like only half of your panel's working, these wavelengths help mitochondria in cells throughout your body produce more energy and clear waste products more efficiently. Red light exposure helps mobilize nitric oxide trapped in the mitochondria and allows oxygen to return to the cell and increase ATP production. The benefits are proven again and again for skin health, muscle recovery, joint pain, and numerous inflammatory conditions. Red light therapy is also beneficial for circadian rhythm alignment because we generally get far too little direct sunlight and too much indoor blue light from screens and light bulbs at the wrong times. You don't hear much about this benefit of red light therapy, but when I turn on those lights, first thing in the morning. As soon as I wake up, I walk across the hall, I stand in front of the panels, and I feel instantly awake and energized. And believe me, there's a lot of days where Mr. Health Guy here wakes up feeling a little groggy and a little whiny, like I don't want to right get up now and get into my morning exercise routine. But when I stand in front of the lights, in one minute, I swear I feel wide awake. I get all that grogginess out naturally. It's super powerful, super effective, besides all the healing and the cellular benefits. I also love it for being a natural wake-up machine. You have to try red light therapy. I am certain that you will become a devoted user. And guess what? Mito Red Light offers a 60-day no-risk trial period and a special 5% discount for BRAD podcast listeners. Just visit mitoredlight, M-I-T-O, redlight.com, and use the code BRAD on any of their products. Go for it today and get started on your red light journey. Yeah. Um, two, two thoughts on that. Like the, I don't know if it's SEC or what, um, regulation agency, um, thought that it would be a good idea to have CEO salaries published, <laughs> thinking that this would shame, you know, companies not paying their CEOs more. Oh. And it had the opposite effect because now you could see what CEO at another company is making and use that as leverage for, for your position. And it caused this sort of, you know, I am not happy because I'm making less than company Y in this comparison. Um, so it backfired on them that, you know, this more, uh, it, it created even greater CEO salaries and, you know, mm -hmm. because uh, people demanded it. Um, the other piece, uh, going back and switching topics again, um, there's importance of making mistakes. And, you know, I, I think as we get older, we might think we shouldn't be making mistakes and, you know, we, we need to be perfect. Um, and that's another thing that I think people are afraid to be vulnerable with is making mistakes. And um, Bill Roberty, I think that's the person's name, became a world-class uh, poker player, backgammon player, and chess player at different times, and world-class rankings at different times in, in his life. And he said his strategy was to make a lot of mistakes. And what's interesting, there's a part of the brain, the um, right in front of the cingulate cortex, the, um, and that registers, it's sort of our... Oh, oh crap network. It's, you know, something doesn't feel right. 
Um, it brings together the emotions and thoughts, and then the frontal lobe can process it. And we learn a lot when we start to feel that, oh, crap feeling like I, I screwed up, I messed up. And to not be afraid of that is one of the best tools for learning. And I, I think that's that's really neat. Um, you know, I, I know I've made these mistakes in life that I can point to, and I'm never making that mistake again, because I learned from those emotional experiences. And um, so I, mm. I think putting people putting themselves out there is really important as well. And, you know, to, to not be afraid to make mistakes and to, to screw things up because that's how you're going to learn, um, take chances. So. Yeah, I guess a, a young person, especially um, the parents can lecture them about their misfortunes and mistakes and don't you do the same, uh, but the significance of the lesson is going to be magnified a hundred times if they, if they can go and, and, and figure out, you know, something like that themselves. Of course, we don't want to uh, repeat the, um, the the accidents that occurred before the, the seatbelts were commonplace. So some of this is not going to be, um, you know, a, a good idea. But in, in other terms, you could loosen the loosen the strings a little bit and see what happens. Yep. Yeah, I, th- I read this years ago, and I, I strongly agree with it now that I have a child. But um, the hardest thing about being a parent is watching your child um, skin their knee and you know, picking them up and telling them just keep on playing. And, um, you know, I, I think we want to be protective of others and, and um, but it's important that they, you know, can get up and, you know, realize that they're capable and they're their own. And, and that to say the same type of thing with mistakes. Um, I, I think my daughter gets ashamed of making mistakes and I, I celebrate mm. the process. You did it, you tried it. Um, that's, that's what's important is the process rather than the outcome. Um, the, the outcome doesn't matter. It's it's just taking the chance and, and doing it. Yeah, there's a lot of cultural programming to unwind. Uh, even how old your daughter? Four. Yeah, I mean that's you know that that's pretty heavy. That somehow she's uh, developing these uh, beliefs from the world around her, from the mm-hmm. you know well-meaning comments that whoever she's interacting with, and then she's uh, she's stressed when she makes a mistake. And you know my kids are in their twenties, but I remember having numerous conversations where I was making attempt to unwind the, you know, misplaced competitive intensity of youth sports and having to talk to my son and say, look, you know, this is, um, it's part of the process. Um, yeah. It's okay to compete hard and try to win, but you also have to remember that you got to let it go as soon as it's over and, and not be afraid and uh, all those kind of things, which I think get lost in the shuffle when we're obsessed with winning and results and numbers. In, mm-hmm. in in modern life here, especially with uh, the trend to, uh, you know, the, the they used to call it the helicopter parent. Now now it's been referred to as the lawnmower parent because helicopters flying above, watching everything, but the lawnmower is just you know paving the path. <laughs> yeah, and, and I, I'm sorry, I'm going all over the place today in this discussion. It's but... great, people. We're talking to Craig Marker, the kettlebell guy, unmasked as an actual psychologist and getting all kinds of interesting commentary. All right. We'll yeah. bring it back to exercise in, in due time. But Yeah. And maybe this is the segue to it. But like, you know, I think about CrossFit and I enjoyed my time in the CrossFit community when it was, you know, early on in the uh, CrossFit times. Um, but the reinforcement system for that, you're, you know, you're name goes up on the board with your time. Mm. And at the end of the day, you want your time or, you know, to be the lowest, lower than everybody, or a number of lifts to be higher than everybody, where actually I should be focusing on the process. I should be making sure my such and such is perfect form. And this, this is perfect form. And instead of focusing on just beating everybody that day, like nobody in that gym remembers me beating them on such a day or doing the best Karen time. Um, I remember it, but nobody else gives a crap. Um, so, mm-hmm. you know, why do we get so focused on these outcomes when I could have been spending a lot more time on, you know, getting really good at this rather than some sloppy muscle loves that, you know, just to, to get done with a, a routine. So. so how do we find that balance point individually where we know that we respond to incentives and recognition, uh, but we don't want to tip it out of balance. And I'm referencing my my triathlon career where I was, I was a professional. So this was everything to me. This was my career. It was, you know, apparently very serious, very important and all those attributes. Uh, however, I, I would routinely struggle 
when I got too stuck up on myself and too obsessed with the results. Uh, but again, um, it wasn't a recreational pursuit where I could say, oh, I don't feel like swimming today. It's kind of raining. And so I was constantly walking this tightrope where I had to maintain a high level of competitive intensity and goal setting and focus, uh, but I didn't want to get ahead of myself. And I, I made that mistake frequently trying to find the, you know, the center of power where you can be a process oriented, highly competitive athlete, able to accept both success and failure gracefully. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think I, I have a great answer. I, I, Carl Rogers said something, you know, the, the paradox of change is that you have to, something like this, accept yourself um, before changing. And so you have to have acceptance of where you're at, that you're, you know, this type of thing. And, and, you know, then you'll feel comfortable changing and you always have to have that sort of radical acceptance of, of where you're at. Um, if I think very pragmatically about mistakes, if I make a mistake, I try to um, cry like a baby, learn from it and then move on. Like a baby cries, they get over wow. it very quickly. And, you know, that's the type of thing. I think we, you know, cry like a baby, learn from that lesson and then forget it. There's no reason to ruminate on it, on it anymore because that's just going to make us miserable. We've taken our lesson from it and we can kind of move on. Um, that's the best I have on that, but it's the human challenge, I think. Yeah, so you can make a, a shirt or something, <laughs> cry like a baby and move on. Uh, so I'm, I'm thinking about that pop in your bicep and I'd like to talk about um, that appropriate um, loading of challenge and progressing with your fitness with minimal risk of uh, setbacks that occur from overdoing it or, or extending beyond your capabilities. And if you have any any nuggets, especially for us in the, the older age groups, because uh, I think my brain is still stuck on um, whatever age, uh, 32 or 27. And um, that, that part's a challenge right now. Yeah, uh, my favorite quote, uh, Neil Stevens said something like, until a man is 25, he'll, he still thinks that, you know, if his family you know, were murdered, he'd go into a ninja and um, like, train as a ninja and can be, I don't think the age is 25. I still feel like I can, you know, like uh, do whatever I need to uh, go into ninja training, whatever it is, and, and become a ninja. Um, like, I, that's my mindset too. Like, like, I feel like I'm going to beat, you know, the 30-year-old kid next to me, you know, doing the snatch test. Um, and that's where I need to be realistic that I probably can, but you know what? I probably should do the proper warm-up, probably should test this out a little bit and not, uh, you know, just jump right into it. Um, I know I could have, like, did some prep work that probably would have prevented all that. So that's where maybe I should have been more mature and thought about the situation a little bit, but yeah, I, I that I don't know if it's our testosterone, if it's the drive, the competitive drive that we have, what it is, but um, that's, that can be problematic at times, but. Um, what's, what's going on in the body when you can get into a, a, a a peak performance state, I, I guess it's inflammation or something. And, uh, these little niggles and aches and pains are suddenly vanished and your mind is optimally excited and uninhibited like Tudor Bompa says. And so you're ready to throw down. And I have a wonderful practice session where I do 20 full high jump approaches and my technique is getting better. And, um, it feels like a thumbs up. I'm walking away from the track with a bounce in my step feeling good. And then the next three days, I get the message like, dude, you're not supposed to do 20. You're supposed to do 12. And um, what were you thinking? But at the time, mm -hmm. I was thought I was clear-headed and uh, thoughtful and rational. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I don't uh, have a great answer for that. I know Pavel used to always say, you know, things like, I don't care about your feelings. Don't care about your feelings mm -hmm. at times. You know, if you feel like you can lift more that day, if it's not in the program, it's not what you're going to try that day. Um, there are days that are built to, you know, take off the uh, governor off the system and, you know, do what you feel like you can do that day. But if it's not in your program that day, and maybe that's, uh, you know, we need to have more uh, intellectual approach and, mm. you know, that those type of days, like 
I didn't have that in my program on, on Saturday when I did that. And I shouldn't have, I know better than doing those type of things, but I, you know, I didn't follow my own advice uh, as usual. Um, so, yeah, that's, uh, that's a good one. I, I think you have to bring the intuitive component in and reason with the circumstances. I'm thinking of like coming back from the high altitude training camp where we trained awesome for three weeks straight and uh, we ate and slept and trained and got fitter and fitter. Uh, but of course it was an extremely stressful event and then coming down back to real life and you still feel great, but you know, you have to say, look, I've just had an incredibly strenuous walk of training. It makes a lot of sense to take a recovery week here, even though I still feel great. And I remember having those sensations a lot because of the, I guess it's the chronic uh, stimulation of the stress response, you actually do feel good the next day and the next day and the next day because you're bathed in um, you know too many stress hormones without recalibrating um, mm-hmm. back to a recovery state. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, Pavel's uh, looked at a lot of the old Soviet um, training programs and you can hurt us um, forgetting his name. He He did... He was a famous Soviet coach, weightlifting coach, and he competed in the Olympics himself and he won a silver medal and he was supposed to win gold and he felt so much shame for it. He, he said, I'm going to dedicate my life to making sure no one else feels ashamed. Oh my gosh. Um, and he measured all of the athletes and like looked at training programs and, and those type of things. And what the Soviets did was they have a a normal curve of training and they did between uh, 55% and 85%. They did most of their work in of their one rep max. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's all in a very doable range and they very seldom went above 85% of one rep max. Um, Their lifters were known to get a, a... one, their world records still hold. The, the weight classes have all changed, but if you look for pound um, for how much they weighed or kilogram versus how much they weighed, they still would have the records. Um, the Bulgarian, and some of them, like I think one uh, was winning it at 36, 32. They, were, they had great long careers. The Bulgarians trained in a just much more intense. A lot of their work was 90% um, above 90, 90% of one rep max or above. And so they were training their system, stressing it. And a lot of their lifters were out, you know, they were winning a gold maybe at age 22, but never to be seen again and, and just injured or just not competing again. So I, I think there's something to building a program where you're not pushing yourself all out very often, but you give yourself the windows when you can. So you can feel those, you know, those great days um, as well. And it's got to be more intellectual, I think. And and you can use your insight when you design the program, but you're kind of building, you know, there's, there's variability, you know, some days are easy, you know, his system is very simple. You have light, medium, heavy days, and they vary and you only have one heavy day a week and the next, you know, it just cycles through. And I think that's, that's a smart way to train. I, again, I don't follow my own advice, but um, you know, well, maybe that's yeah. You're, you're on a time schedule because you're so busy and you have a chance to fit a workout in. And of course, why would you go there and do a 55% of one rep max workout for the average Joe, like me making these calculations. It's like, that's ridiculously light. And I don't think I've ever lifted a weight that light in the course of a workout because it's like, what am I doing? I drove to the gym. I I waited in line to check to beep my tag and and get a towel. I got to go get some work done now. But that's an amazing insight that these world level guys, and I'm just thinking of, um, I I was just reading about Elaine Thompson's training, the the fastest female uh, on the planet at her very peak. And uh, she was listing her workouts. And one of them was like 10 times 200 meters at 5k pace. And I'm like, oh. is that a misprint or something? <laughs> this sprinter who's running, yeah. you know, 10, uh, what did she just run? 10, 10.51 last year in the hundred, probably the greatest performance of all time. And she's doing a track workout at a 5k pace. That's, um, yeah. you know, so far below, um, in actual, you know, capability of, of running sprints. Like you might imagine if you happen by her track in Jamaica, but it was a real revelation to think they're just there and moving their legs and building and building and building 
without mm-hmm. crushing themselves like the average CrossFit enthusiast or um, the, the triathletes go to the track Tuesday night and have their track session and they're huffing and puffing and they're, they're running at way higher capacity than an Olympic athlete comparatively. Mm-hmm. And maybe we can use a food analogy. I mean, it's, it's almost like you've got something really good and you just take those extra bites and we probably shouldn't, um, you know, that's when we don't follow emotion. I I think there are times we should follow emotion, but, um, you know, maybe if you're just feeling good that day and you probably should quit, that's when you should quit. And that's the hardest, that's the hardest decision. I I, I'm right there with you. Um, when you're feeling good, you just want to try it. I think I can do a PR today. Yeah. We have some reinforcement now, people. We're 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 talking it. We're bringing it. We're bringing it to the surface. This is that point where you have to ask yourself, uh, "What am I still doing here? Have I hit my uh, effective minimum dose, or what have you?" But the food analogy works really well because um, you know you know that three bites of cheesecake is plenty, and it's a wonderful celebration, and you deserve it, and you're going to enjoy it. And if you stepped away from the table right at that point that would be ideal. And then the rest of it's going to feel uh, gas bloating, regret the next day or whatever. Mm-hmm. Have that control. Definitely. Yep. All right. And it's great to catch up with you. I'm, I'm glad we went off onto different paths today because I think a lot of it applies to our health and fitness goals and we, we brought it back pretty well. So um, thanks for, thanks yes. for checking in. Good luck with your, uh, your dunking and hopefully you didn't hurt your arm too much from that that little, little challenge, but it's just enough to activate my AACC in my brain that says, Oh crap. And I learned a valuable Ah, lesson. Yes. There we go. Don't, don't screw around with this. Uh, I I need to. Yep. So it was a very lucky lesson that I, that I didn't get hurt. Yeah. Especially um, warming up and preparing properly. And I know whenever I skip those steps, when I was young, didn't matter at all. I would, you know, jump right off my bike into the swimming pool and be off with the next workout. And now, um, everything needs that, you know, methodical preparation to bring the body to, uh, readiness for whatever you're going to do. That's, you know, significant. Mm -hmm. Yep. Dr. Craig marker, people catching up before his busy day on, on campus teaching kids. And I like those tips to get out of your comfort zone and bring in a little, a little stress and challenge some mistakes and then learn and grow from it. Brad, it's always a pleasure to, to speak with you. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening, everybody. Da-da-da-da. Hey, ladies. You may have heard me talk about Gaines Wave treatment for improving male penile vascular health and sexual function, and maybe you thought, hey, what about my needs? Well, Gaines Wave has got you covered with a revolutionary new treatment protocol called Gaines Wave for Her. As with the male Gaines Wave treatment, a skilled practitioner uses a handheld device to send low-intensity shock waves into your vaginal area to stimulate a healing response, promote increased blood circulation, and the growth of new blood vessels. After a series of 6 to 12 very brief treatments, which are painless but extremely effective, you get real results with Gaines Wave reporting an 80% success rate. Some benefits... You will revitalize your intimate relationships with heightened sensation and arousal and enhance pleasure and satisfaction. Don't contemplate invasive procedures or uncomfortable medical treatments. Regain confidence and reclaim your sexuality with Gaines Wave for her. You visit the website gainswave.com, G-A-I-N-S-W-A-V-E.com slash Brad to find a practitioner in your area. You complete a series of treatments and the beneficial effects will last for a long time, especially if you eat and exercise well to promote overall vascular health. It's a tune-up for your equipment. So please visit gainswave.com slash Brad to find a practitioner in your area and take advantage of my special promo that you'll mention when you find your local practitioner. Buy six treatments and get one free. Thank you for listening to the show. I love sharing the experience with you and greatly appreciate your support. Please email podcast at bradventures.com with feedback, suggestions, and questions for the Q&A shows. 
Subscribe to our email list at bradkerns.com for a weekly blast about the published episodes and a wonderful bi-monthly newsletter edition with informative articles and practical tips for all aspects of healthy living. You can also download several awesome free ebooks when you subscribe to the email list. And if you could go to the trouble to leave a five or five star review with Apple Podcasts or wherever else you listen to the shows, that would be super incredibly awesome. It helps raise the profile of the BRAD podcast and attract new listeners. And did you know that you can share a show with a friend or loved one by just hitting a few buttons in your player and firing off a text message? My awesome podcast player called Overcast allows you to actually record a soundbite excerpt from the episode you're listening to and fire it off with a quick text message. Thank you so much for spreading the word. And remember, be rad.